we got a lot of different things coming at you today, okay? And I'm just sensing a little bit of a lull right now. that. We don't got time for that Let's go. Crank it. Crank it. Let it cross. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Derek Johnson and Nick Springer on FM 1017 and 1320 KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, what's happening? Welcome into another edition of Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson with Nick Springer. Hey. We're brought to you by 23rd Street Brewery. And on today's episode of the show, Talking some KU basketball. We got our heroes and villains segment. Uh, we're going to be joined by Kevin Flaherty at 4:40. Matt Tate is going to join us at 3:40. Our NFL Week 14 recap and uh, some more KU basketball audio to get you on today's show. Off the top here, I kind of want to do a deep dive into the bench, the I guess five through nine, but specifically the guard positions. You know, wh- whenever we talk about the five through nine competition for KU basketball and uh, how many of these guys are end up going to be a, a part of the rotation by the end of the season? Um, which ones is it going to be? What's going on with this guy? Can can that guy turn into this? I, I think it's funny because even though we say five through nine and just lump them all together with the bench players and the fifth starter, Parker Brown isn't really part of those conversations. Nah. Because Parker Brown's role is... It's just like a floating role. He could be the eighth guy. He could be the ninth guy. He could be the sixth guy. Either way, his role is his role. He is the backup the center yeah, for five to ten minutes a night behind Hunter Dickinson. Yeah. It's like the his same role secured. no matter what. Right. Yeah. So from that standpoint, when we say five through nine, it's really we're talking about the four bench guards slash fifth starter. Marco Jackson, Johnny Furphy, Nick Timberlake, Jamari McDowell. So I want to do a deep dive into how they've played so far this season and kind of come up with, with where we think this is going to go. There's still... What three more weeks of the non-con essentially between three more games and uh, just days to practice, days off, Christmas break. Uh, then you get into conference play, and like even then, you know there are guys that don't break out or really solidify their role until February. Until I mean, we've seen with Remy Martin and, and Malik Newman until March, right? Yeah. So it, it's possible that this goes on a little bit more, but the closer you get to conference play, the more you do start to feel like you're running out of time to develop these things. And it's funny because the season has only been going for, this is crazy. Like, doesn't it feel like the season's been going for like two months at this point? It feels like it's been going for the a while. The season began yeah. on November 6th. That's a month and six days ago. Isn't that crazy? Well, I think it's just because of all the off-season shenanigans with the, you know, recruitment of Hunter Dickinson, the questions about McCuller coming back, then the hype building up of the number one team in the preseason, you know. But it's just crazy. It's, it's basically been one month. So yeah. as much as I feel like we've seen a lot of KU basketball and as much as... I mean, we've seen 10 games. Yeah, as much as you would hope that maybe there were a little more strides being made by, you know, maybe a few of the guys or, or just overall with the bench, that's still such a small amount of the season. It's one month on a season that goes, what, five months long, six months technically if you're playing in the Final Four in, in April. So uh, let, let's just start with Marco Jackson. 23 and a half minutes per game so far. He's been the the starter, 6.2 points per game, 1.4 rebounds, 3.1 assists, 0.9 steals, 0.2 blocks. He's only shooting 38% from the floor, 25% from three. He is shooting 92% on free throws. 
You look at the analytic numbers. Uh, by Evan Miakawa's BPR, he is fifth on the team. He is sixth in offensive BPR among their 10 players that qualify there, fifth in defensive BPR. Uh, now, if you look at the net rating, we talked about this yesterday, the on-off net rating, he is first um, overall in the team. First in O rating, fifth in D rating there. And then you look at the lineup rating. How does the entire lineup with the four normal starters, Dewan Harris, Kevin McCuller, KJ Adams, Hunter Dickinson, how does that lineup do when you're the fifth guy, which maybe that's the most prevalent of all these numbers? That is KU's second-best lineup among the four we're going to talk about here with a plus 26.7 net rating. So uh, there's kind of the numbers on it, but here's yeah. the more basis of the question. Do you feel better, worse, or the same about where we're at with Marco Jackson from where we were at the beginning of the season? Yeah, it's interesting. Marco Jackson, and I've kind of touched on this a little bit, for whatever reason, the hype around him kind of maybe ballooned to a bit of an extreme, I would say, now looking back on it, of people thinking, wow, this guy's going to come in and he's going to be electrifying, dynamite, slashing, cutting, making big plays like right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that was just maybe KU fans talking themselves into into that and thinking, okay, well, he's your highest rated, he's your highest rated freshman recruit. You know, you just you just had a season of Grady Dick who kind of from the jump was able to do some of that kind of stuff and have a big impact. Uh, and so from if, if you want to go based off of maybe what some of the most optimistic expectations were for El Marco Jackson, he's under, he's underperformed there. But I think when you look at the numbers, he's been he's been fine. He's been he's been pretty, pretty solid. Uh, you know, like you like you said, over 20 minutes per game. The three point shots not there yet, but uh, maybe you might have a little bit of faith in it coming around eventually. Uh, there's been games where you've seen Bill Self on the sidelines, and if you're a lip reader, he'll he'll say, oh, "I can't trust this guy." And then uh, you know, well, then he keeps playing, you know. So, uh, yeah, and I think the biggest thing with El Marco is that he's clearly in other areas. You know, we always talk about the things that it's funny with Bill Self with players like this. We sometimes focus on the things that are going to keep you off the floor if you're coaching with Bill Self. Bad defense, effort, you know, things like that. Now, Marco seems to check all those boxes because you don't see him get taken off the floor very often for for other things like mental side or, or effort side. So he's clearly got those boxes checked. Uh, I think for now, based off expectations, like he's probably maybe, again, I, it depends on how much you really bought into some of the preseason hype. I'd say he's holding steady right now, holding steady. I mean, he hasn't, I don't think he's blown anybody away, but he's had some really quality games. And he seems to be starting to figure things out and starting to build good games on good games, it feels like, or, or you know, solid games on solid games, so on and so forth. So I think you feel pretty good about where Omarco's at right now. I mean, based off of maybe what you thought preseason, you feel okay about it. I mean, we mentioned it, we talked about it yesterday. I mean, at the end of the day, he's your fifth option. And if your fifth option is pretty solid, that's not bad. Yeah. I think what what becomes interesting here is I mean there there haven't been a ton of freshmen in in Bill Self's time uh, at KU that have gotten as many minutes as uh, Marco's getting per game. Not that he's getting like a, a hefty chunk compared to you know some of your other starters, but twenty three and a half minutes per game. That is right now if if you were to finish that way would be fifteenth most minutes per game by a Bill Self freshman. The only ones in front of him, Andrew Wiggins, Grady Dick, Devon Dotson, Ben McElmore, Brandon Rush, Josh Jackson, Wayne Selden, Jalen Wilson, Xavier Henry. Uh, Quentin Grimes, Tyshawn Taylor, Mario Chalmers, J.R. Giddens, a couple, of, a couple of those guys were redshirt freshmen. Yeah, uh, Wilson was a redshirt freshman. Yeah. Macklemore was a redshirt freshman. I'm right? assuming Mario Chalmers probably. No, he was he not. Wasn't. He, that was a true freshman right away. Um, so, yeah, I mean, 
like clearly in one sense you could point to that and be like, well, Bill Self clearly trusts him. Do you think that minute per game number though is more indicative of that? Or do you think it is more indicative of they don't have the other options this year? Yeah, it's almost it's basic to me it's indicative of he seems to be the most reliable of the four that we're talking about. And the fact that KU only has a limited number of scholarship players this year means that if you are one of the more reliable guys, you're going to be playing more minutes. So I think it's a little of both. I mean, I think Almarco has shown that he he can you know hold his own with the big boys, right? He played over 30 minutes in the UConn game, right? Uh, and that was obviously the biggest stage KU's played on so far this season, I would think. Uh, so he's shown that he can do that. But I do think it's like part of it is a product of KU's situation with the fact that they don't have, you know, other guys that maybe have stepped up sure. and taken that away. But it's not like El Marco is, is not holding his own. Well, here's a fun thought starter for you. If El Marco Jackson was on last year's team, who gets the most playing time? Bobby Pettiford, Joe Yesifu, or El Marco Jackson right now? Mm, I mean, I think El Marco Jackson probably is number two on there. I feel like Bobby Pettiford would have found a way to get more minutes. <laughs> Rightly or wrongly. Sure. Uh, here, by the way, here's per 40 per forty numbers for all three, which balance out like in terms of minutes like played. Like Pettiford, yes, Fu, and, yeah, yeah. and Jackson. Pettiford was at, this is last year, seven and a half points, four and a half assists, four rebounds. Um, and that was on a 57% true shooting percentage. And a 7.3 PER. Um, okay. Honestly, better than I think you would have expected it. I mean, he's only seven points per 40 minutes, though. That's so low. Anyway, uh, Joe Yesifu, his per 40 last year was Kansas, was 13 points, four rebounds, little over one assist, and true shooting percentage was 46%. And El Marco right now, his per 40 is about 10.5 points, over five assists, two and a half rebounds, and his true shooting percentage is about 55% thanks to the free throw shooting. His PER is a 10. Uh, Joe Yesifu's PER was a 7.9, and Pettifer's was a 7.3. So, I mean, it's, it's very close numbers all the way through, no matter who you look. Maybe El Marco would be getting more time because he has the highest ceiling, and it wouldn't matter. And, and like I said, I've actually been impressed with what El Marco do, has done over the last three games. I yeah. think there have been a lot of positives you can take away from the games. Yeah. But it's certainly, I, I don't think you can answer that like in terms of if you're saying stocks up, down, or the same from where it was at the beginning of the year. I, I don't think you can say it's up. Yeah, I think it's probably the same. I don't same. think you can say it's down either, though. He's starting. Exactly. He's playing 23 and a half minutes. He yeah. played, what, 32 minutes in the UConn game? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, over 30 minutes. I think it's yeah. the same. I think yeah, it's same. I, think it's, I think it's probably pretty close to the same. Again, I, I mean, it just depends on how much you bought into some of that preseason hype. You know. Now, where are you buying into the rest of the season? Like, do you think this is going to be it for the rest of the year? Do you think there's another gear he can go to? I think there's definitely another level he could, but like, he could get to. To what extent? Like, are we talking instead of 6.2 points, he's up to 7.5? Or are we talking Maybe. the rest of the year he can get 11, 12 points per game? Because those oh, are big no, I think No, I think he'll probably be in the 7 to 8 point range. But can the efficiency to me, go up? he has the potential to have some blow-up games where he does score... 15, 16, 17, 18 points. But I don't expect that night in and night out. Because, again, you're the fifth option. Yeah, okay. Will there be a game in Big 12 play where we say it's the El Marco game? Where he I had so. 16 points on so, yeah. 8 of 12. And I think there'll be at least game. one. You think so? Okay. Yeah. Okay, let's move on to Johnny Furphy. Furphy is at 14 minutes per game. 
Uh, 5.7 points per game, 2.5 rebounds, 0.3 assists, 0.6 steals, 0.1 blocks. He is shooting 51% from the floor, 40% from three, 75% at the foul line. He is eighth in BPR on the team, eighth in offensive BPR, sixth in defensive BPR, uh, sixth on the team in on-off rating, uh, fourth in O rating, seventh in D rating. And the lineup rating, which I said, like I said, I mean, that's probably the most important because that's where you're going to be making the impact is being uh, the fifth guy with the rest of those starters. That is actually first among these four plus 31.1 net rating. So again, main question here uh, in terms of the self circle of trust or just overall play, however you yep. want to view it, circle uh, trust, where, where's things up, down, same from the beginning of the year. Mm, I think they are up. Definitely. And you know, this has been pointed out by a few people is that Johnny Furphy kind of the role that he is stepping into is maybe not even the role that he's best built for, right? He's right now he's kind of become like sort of that shooter guy because Timberlake uh so that's why. And that and again that while Timberlake while uh Furphy seems to be succeeding at that in a lot of ways, that's not necessarily maybe what he is the best at. So it's kind of interesting because I think this is a situation where it it could go much higher for Furphy if he's maybe unlocked and allowed to play more of the style that he might be his best at. Uh, but for now, he's doing an admirable job filling in what KU seems to be wanting him to do overall. Uh, and, you know, it makes sense that he has one of the, that he has the highest net rating because this is a guy that people have suggested should maybe be starting over Marco in certain cases, uh, maybe because of his extra length and his extra size. But, but yeah, I think Furphy... It's definitely much higher, right? I mean, anytime you have a guy like this, an international player that comes in, it's really hard to set expectations really one way or the other, right? Mm -hmm. Because he's an international guy. You don't know the type of competition he was playing against in Australia. You don't know, you know, a lot of that stuff of how, how that stuff gone went for him previously. But uh, I think he's, given what he's produced, you've got to feel pretty good because this is a guy that joined the team, you know, less than two months before the start of the season. Right, I mean, dude got here in August, so definitely, I feel a lot better about Furphy than I did previously, in terms of his impact and what he could bring to the team. So, uh, that that's been a really positive sign for K because you take away you take away Furphy and then you're you're thinking, hey, you only got you know eight, eight scholarship guys at that point, basically. Yeah. So uh, he's he's been a much needed much needed player, and I think he is probably second in line behind Del Marco if we were going to rank these guys. Uh, based off what he's done, the the question with Furphy is, I mean, do you think he could ever legitimately take away a starting spot from El Marco? I think there's a world, but the thing is, El Marco's been the better defensive player um, to this point. Not that either I think has really excelled there. I think El Marco's been um, had some struggles off the ball, which is going to happen with freshmen. I think on the ball he's done a better job. I think Furphy has given up more there, but Furphy is a better match for. The three-point shooting side of things, giving you more length and versatility out there. Um, another offensive rebounder, another guy that can help from the, the rebounding perspective just in general. So it wouldn't surprise me if at any point that did happen. But the way El Marco's been playing the last few games, and like you look at this last game and Missouri's just going right at Furphy and he only plays seven minutes, it definitely feels like there is a gap there in that level of trust, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, you, you mentioned it yesterday with Missouri. Their game plan wasn't, we're going to attack El Marco on defense every play. No. It was, we're going to attack Furphy and Timberlake. 
So guess what? That means that they clearly believe that Omarco is a much stronger defender than those other guys. Yeah, yeah, just really athletic. And, and Furphy has the length and the potential to get there, I think, because of his athleticism too. But uh, right now it just takes time with a lot of freshmen so far this season. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's another gear Furphy can go to too. Uh, I think it more so becomes with the rest of his game. Like the three-point shooting, obviously 40%. I, I don't think it's going to get much better than that. But can you get more from him as a driver? Can you get more from him throwing down dunks? Can you get more from him as a rebounder and a defender? Those are going to be the keys. Uh, Nick Timberlake, 11.5 minutes per game, 3.5 points per game, 1.5 rebounds, half an assist, 0.2 steals, 0.1 blocks. He is only shooting 33% from the floor, 29% from three, 67% at the foul line by BPR. He is 7th, 5th and OBPR, 9th and DBPR, which he's actually a negative right now. Uh, he is 4th in on-off net rating for KU, interestingly enough. Second in O rating, he is eighth in D rating. I think where that derives is the O rating is it's it's not even as much about him being on the he hasn't shot the ball well, right? It's not as much about the performance he's had. It's that by having him on the court, it opens things up so much for Hunter Dickinson, which goes back to the idea if he can just be like a below average defender, I think that's enough as long as he's shooting thirty five to forty percent from three. Yeah. Uh, but the lineup rating with Dewan, Kevin, KJ, Hunter, and Timberlake is fourth among these lineups at negative 14.8 with the net rating. So uh, I, I think you'd clearly have to say stock is kind of down on where it was before the season. Yeah, much lower, right? I mean, I think to your point, the the general expectation or the hope for Timberlake is that, okay, you shoot 37, 38, 39, 40% from three, but you're not a great defender, so you don't play that many minutes. But when you come in, you can knock down threes. Well, the defending stuff has been, I think, worse than expected, right? Yep. And the shooting, obviously, has been significantly worse than you expected. So <laughs> the two things that are really maybe what you were looking at most with Timberlake in terms of what what his role would be are both significantly more negative than what you're hoping for to start the season. So the question with to me, the question with Timberlake continues to be, do you still believe that he can have a light bulb moment? Do you still believe that he can that things can just start to click for him? And uh, I I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel at this point with him. You know, I uh, the thing is is uh, I can't believe that he would just turn into a bad shooter. I mean, this is a guy that shot over forty yeah. percent two seasons in a row from three at Towson, right? You would it's, think that that would not drop off to twenty nine percent. Well, it's the, it's just so different, the, like higher level. It's just different when you come off the bench and if you don't hit one of your first two shots, right. you're getting pulled. And even right. if you go one of two, you might get pulled, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a different level of, of getting rhythm and everything over the course of the game that you're not really allotted to. And I, I think it, it has to go one of two ways. He either needs to be a 40% like knock, knock, knock down three-point shooter. Um, or the defense has to get a lot better. Or the defense has to just be below average, and he's a 35% plus three-point shooter. Because, like, Isaiah Moss, I think, was, like, a below-average defender. but he And he was shooting 35%, but that was high volume. So if you do that, I think it at least gets you on the court for 10, 15, maybe 20 minutes a game in this specific game. Yeah. If, if you're going to stay at the level where the defense is now, you got to be 40%. To exactly. at least stay on the floor in like a Brandon Green role, which well, you, was still think only about, 10, 15 minutes a game. You think about Timberlake playing at a, at a place like Towson. At Towson, who cares how bad the defense is? You're the best scorer on the team probably. So you're going to be out there regardless. You're going to be playing high-volume minutes regardless because you're the guy that can score. Well, when you come to Kansas and suddenly there's three or four other guys that are the best scorers and you're not the best scorer, the other stuff 
besides the scoring for you, has to be yeah. serviceable enough, good enough for you to maintain a spot on the floor. And that has not been the case. And then you com- then you compound that with the fact that th- the shooting has been uh, abysmal. I mean, I, th- I think that's putting it kind of softly to say that it's been abysmal. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of being nice about it. So, uh, I, again, I, I think, like I said, the question just becomes, can Timberlake have a maybe one game where he's able to shoot three or four or four or five or something, something that can that can spark him? Does that is that all he needs to maybe get things going? Yes, that becomes the question, and and how much does he garner the trust of Bill Self? You know, uh, the last one here is Jamari McDowell. We'll do this one a little click, quicker. Nine minutes per game, two point two points, one point eight rebounds, point seven assists, point two steals, point one block. Uh, he's only shooting 23% from the floor, 28.6% from three, 75% at the foul line, ninth in BPR, eighth in on-off rating. Uh, lineup ratings have it third. They're plus 8.8, so ahead of the Timberlake one, but well behind the Furphy and El Marco ones. I, it's hard to say because it, it's clear McDowell is kind of the ninth man among this. Like, Even if McDowell maybe right now, because of the defense, maybe deserves to be a little bit higher than Timberlake. I think you're still seeing Timberlake go in before him because Bill Self realizes the ceiling of what Timberlake can be is going to be more impactful for this team. Um, so I, I think overall you'd probably say, I guess, like, I feel better about where Jamari, Jamari McDowell's at now than the beginning of the year because he yeah. thought he might redshirt, so you yeah. didn't know if he was going to play at all. And we've yeah. at least seen moments like the Tennessee game, but it's still not enough to where I'm like, oh, this guy's got to be in the rotation every night. Yeah, I think the thing that I trust the most with McDowell and the thing that I'm most high about him right now is is his, his his mental game, right? I mean, think about... I don't know that we necessarily highlighted the Kentucky game enough for McDowell. He's been on the bench for 37 minutes, and you're asking him to come into a game in the Champions Classic in a one-possession game to come in and, and you know, step up, right? And he did, and he hit some critical three throws up, okay, you win the game. Uh, so I think that's the biggest thing for me for McDowell that maybe Bill Self recognizes is this is a guy that is mentally ready for tough situations to, and you can throw him in and he can just hold his own, right? Yeah. I mean, obviously, the, the offense really hasn't been there for him, but you mentioned the defensive side. He's, he's a guy that, given the circumstances, you can throw him in and you know he's not just going to freeze or you know he's not going to lock up in, in the moment. Okay, make your prediction. Uh, second round game in the NCAA tournament come March. What does the rotation look like? Who's the fifth starter? How many players play? I think it's probably still Marco as the fifth starter. Okay, I agree with that. Furphy... Probably still your first off the bench. Mm-hmm. I mean, listen. Parker against, Brown's the backup center. Might only U- play a handful of minutes. Against UConn, it was a six-man rotation. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I I don't know. I I have a hard time believing that Timberlake's going to get there or really McDowell. I think you're probably looking at six-man rotation plus Parker Brown. I'm going to make the guess. I'm, I'm going to have the belief that Timberlake figures it out. He gets on a hot streak shooting or he at least just becomes a little bit better defensively. Yeah. I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't, yeah. I'm just going to put trust in Bill Self. So we'll <laughs> okay, see. Okay, there you go. I, uh, he's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to talk with Matt Tate in about 15 minutes from right now. This is RCST on KLWN, depending on it. Welcome back in to Rock Chalk Sports Talk with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson, and we're joined now by Matt Tate of R1S1Sports.com. Uh, KU basketball's through the first 10 games of their season, so about a quarter of the way through. just depends how many games they end up playing uh, for the end of the year. Uh, Matt, at this point in time, which player maybe has you, I, I don't know, surprised you the most 
in being even better than, than maybe you thought before the season? What player has been the biggest pleasant surprise for KU basketball? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's tough. Um, whew. I, I mean, I, I would probably say Hunter, to be honest with you. I was, I was, you know, pretty underwhelmed. We might have talked about this in the past, but I was pretty underwhelmed with his exhibition performances and, and even really what I saw in Puerto Rico. I mean, I thought he... I thought he got numbers, and and he kind of looked like a guy who would get a pretty good stat line, even if he didn't play that well, just because he's so big and and because so many things, you know, run through him or come to him or whatever it is. So, you know, I kind of thought, man, maybe they're not, you know, maybe they're not quite getting what everyone thought they were getting. And then it turns out that all he was waiting for was to flip the switch when the season really started and, and to play games that mattered and to play at Allen Fieldhouse and all those things. And he's been sensational. I mean, um, every bit as good as advertised, every bit the player that people were saying is, you know, an all American candidate, uh, perfect fit for Bill Self, all those things. So I thought he would be good. And then in the, in the summer and preseason, I thought he would be, better than we were seeing and so then I lowered my expectations a little bit and then now he's exceeded those by a lot if that if you followed that train it was it was a little bit of a of of one of those trains that you built when you were a kid that didn't quite stay on the track you know one of those but I think Hunter's the answer for me I mean I think Kevin McCullough's been really good obviously um his scoring's been good but everything else I think at least I knew, and, and a lot of people knew that he he already had that in his game. He has elevated his scoring, but that's because of opportunity, I think, as much as anything. Um, DeWan's been good, not great, but good. Um, KJ's been good, and he seems to be really coming on right now. Uh, and then the rest are kind of, I guess the jury's still out on a lot of them. I mean, El Marco's been there, nothing spectacular, nothing terrible, but there. Perfy seems to be coming, but he hasn't been anything better than I thought he would be. Um, I, I think he's still got a, a, a lot of room to grow and, and will be much better than we're seeing right now. Um, Timberlake's been the, the opposite answer to that question, a, a disappointment, probably the number one disappointment, just because he hasn't been very good defensively. He hasn't made a ton of shots. He, he, he hasn't been able to be on the floor much because of that. So, that would be the opposite answer to that. And then who else does that leave? Uh, Parker Brown. I, you know, Parker might be second or third on, on the list of answering your question there. I mean, he's been limited minutes, but he's been really good when he's been on the floor. I mean, so steady, so, you know, consistent. Uh, he delivers whenever asked, offensively, defensively on the glass. Uh, he's been really good. Um, I, I think if they didn't have such a monster in, in Hunter Dickinson, who, you know, commands big minutes and, and they want to play him as much as possible. I think they'd love to put Parker Brown on the floor more, but just can't do it with, with both of those guys out there. So, um, yeah, I think the whole team is a work in progress still, and, and that's pretty wild because they've got a few really good wins already, and they're ranked number two in the country. And, and if, if if Bill Self can put his stamp on this team and, and, and kind of get them to grow and improve, at the rate that a lot of his teams in the past have done over the next couple of months heading into February, then, you know, I, I think this team's ceiling is obviously national title contender and, and all those things that we talked about all off season. So it's, uh, it's, it's wild to think that they are what they are and that's really good, but that they still have a lot of room to grow and go. And, and if they reach that, uh, they'll be really tough to beat. 
We were talking about the kind of battle of the guards who are in that like five through nine uh, range in the rotation right now at the, at the beginning of the show with Marco Jackson being the starter and then Furphy and, and Timberlake, who you talked about there and, and him kind of struggling to get shots. Jamari McDowell kind of on the fray of things too right now. And uh, I we were kind of getting to the point like what do you think – I, I don't know, the, the ceiling, or, or what do you think the improvement can come from some of those guys? I, I've kind of thought that El Marco has played well over these past couple games, even if it doesn't always show up in the stat sheet. I think that's just going to sometimes be hard to do because you're the fifth option on the floor. Um, like, what do, what do you think realistically that would look like if Johnny Furphy and El Marco Jackson are playing much better, have secured more of a role uh, in terms of either the minutes going up or, you know, I, I don't know, just being more trustworthy, game in, game out for Bill Self. What specifically would it take for that to happen for both of those guys? Yeah, good question. I like that a lot. Um, I, you know, my answer to that is is pretty easy. I think I think it's a flip of of roles. I think it's Johnny Furphy becomes the starter and uses his athleticism and ability to get on the glass and just you know knock down shots as well as almost anybody so far. Um, they could use more of that, and and so you know maybe his confidence grows if you put him out in that role, and and uh, I think it's coming. I, I I really do. I think that um, you mentioned it. We both talked about it. El Marco's been okay, and he's had some decent moments and some rough moments, and kind of everything in between. But he he hasn't wowed anybody to think that oh you got to keep starting this guy. He has to start. You know no, they got to start a fifth guy. That's the only thing they have to do. And I, I think Furphy's closing in on possibly moving into that spot. So if that happens, or, or even when that happens, uh, it, I think the argument could be made that that's good for both players because then I think El Marco knows his role much, much easier, much more, more clearly. He's the backup point guard, right? He comes in, and, and he can pretty much spell any one of those guards because he can play all, all three positions, and he's – He's got the versatility to do so. I don't know where his knowledge of, of needing to, you know, know every position down pat is, but I would imagine it's close. And um, so, you know, he, he slides into more of a, a reserve role and more of a bench role and a contributor and a guy that, you know, maybe isn't viewed as oh, we got to get a lot from this guy, more of a typical, hey, when you go out there, all you got to do is hold the line. You know, you don't have to you don't have to be a part of anything that gets us off and going and build the lead. You just have to not give it up. And self-talked about that a lot with his second unit and um, and also guys that, that jump to the NBA and do that, that he's had um, that, that, that are guys that are in that second unit conversation. So I, I think that that, you know, it, it would it would remain to be seen if that was a situation where if El Marco gets put into that role, what happens to his confidence? You know, if, if that if that becomes an issue, if his confidence is shot as a result of that, and you know, if he viewed it as a demotion or something like that, then maybe it's not the best thing. But if he can handle it mentally, if he can if he can understand that, hey, this can actually be best for the team, this can also be better for me because, you know, my role will be a little more clearly defined now and I'm still going to get X number of minutes and I'll have plenty of opportunities to play and, and, and contribute and all that. But I just, I'm just a different player now, a little bit different role. If he can handle that mentally, then I think it could be the best thing in the world for, for this team and, and for both players. So um, I'm really interested to see if or when that happens. And, um, you know, I, I think the way Furphy's coming on, and he's not by any means perfect, but he just seems to bring – 
a little bit more than any of those other guys. And I don't know if that's what you guys were talking about in your conversation, but, but his length, his athleticism, his speed, his tenacity, um, his ability to shoot the ball, his, his fearlessness. I mean, there's so many things that you see from him when he's out there that you just don't really see from the, those other guys right now. And so I think he's earned an opportunity to at least get that to be a, a consideration. And, and uh, you know, what, if, if that were to happen, he would have to obviously prove that it was a good move and uh, be worthy of the spot. Otherwise, you know, they'd have to probably flip it back really quickly. But I think he'd be ready to handle it. And he seems to me like the kind of kid that would be um, fueled by, by, oh, my God, I heard my name. I'm a starter. This is exciting. Let's go. And, and you know, being be the kind of guy that can really get the team off to a, a big-time lift right out of the gate. Oh, talking with Matt Tate of R1S1Sports.com here. Switching over to some KU football. Uh, there's been some recent news. Deshaun Hanica committing to KU from the transfer portal from Iowa State, but none bigger than Melo Dotson announcing that he's going to be returning to the fold for KU for 2024, looking to get some revenge on uh, everybody, <laughs> apparently. I don't know. Uh, everybody. How, yeah. <laughs> how, how big of a deal is it for KU football to have Melo Dotson back for next year? I think it's huge um, because we don't know exactly yet what's going to happen with Kobe Bryant, and, and if Kobe's back, then that's even bigger and, and getting both of them back massive. Right. And, and so um, that's the ultimate goal. Obviously that's what, what Brian Borland and Lance Leipold and the entire defensive roster would want to happen, I think. But if Kobe decides to, to test or to leave or to whatever, then it's nice for them to know that Mello's already in the fold committed to return. And they've got at least that one guy that they can count on, who's made plays and been a veteran and, and been out there for a lot of snaps and made a bunch of game-changing type of um, plays and moments and stops and all that stuff. So I, 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 don't, I don't know that you really call it insurance necessarily, but it's a little bit of that. It's a, it's a little bit of that, you know, well, if, if we do lose Kobe, we're not losing everything. Um, whereas if you lost both of them, it would be, that would be a pretty significant blow. So I, I think it's not only big in that sense, but I think – to me, there's this this vibe around that decision that that it may be sort of the first domino to fall in in a positive way, and uh, maybe now it opens the door for some of these other guys to say, okay, you know what, let's run it back. I'm I'm back too, and then another guy a day or two later, I'm back too. You know, and and so um, we all know what this team could be if they return the guys they can return. Um, you know, they're definitely going to lose some players. And uh, eligibility and graduation and all that stuff is going to take a little bit of their 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 punch away. But I, you know, as far as what most teams lose most years, I think this team would be um, completely fine if everybody else came back and they just had to replace the guys that that were graduating and, and no longer had any eligibility. Because if that's the case, um, they're loaded and. Gosh, man, you could be looking at a team picked pretty highly in the in the preseason Big Twelve polls next year, and and probably a preseason ranked team too. So, um, it, it's it's exciting to see that. It's exciting to kind of know that that's part of the uh, part of the, the the stories that lie ahead. You know, there's there's obviously a bowl game in in two weeks, um, and that's exciting too. But I think people are probably as excited about. You know, what does this thing look like next year? Who's going to be with us? Who are we going to bring in? Blah, blah, blah. All those things that, that, you know, they can start getting excited about 
what's happening um, as they look to the future rather than just can we beat Illinois, or excuse me, can we beat UNLV? Um, you know, they got to show up and win that game, but I think that that they should be in a really good position to do so. And, and so maybe some of the attention's less on this, this bowl game that's coming up and more on these types of decisions with guys like Devin Neal and Kobe Bryant and, and others too, obviously uh, Mello already being one of them. So big news, big deal. The revenge thing made me laugh. I love it though. Um, Mello's a quiet dude. He's, he's, uh, he's very humble. He doesn't brag, you know, but, but he uh, apparently back-to-back games with pick sixes wasn't enough for him. So he's going to come back and get revenge and make it three in a row next year. And if he does that, I think that'd be really good news for KU. Which of those other decisions that they kind of talked about a little bit there, uh, Devin Neal, Kobe Bryant, Austin Booker, which of those three do you think becomes the biggest for just in terms of impact for KU in 2024? Yeah, tough question. But I think, I mean, I think a lot of people would point to Neal as the obvious answer. Um, and and it with Devin, it's so much bigger than just production and and the guys you're going to hand the ball off to. You know, it's legacy stuff, right? It's it's um, he's been the face of this rebuild. He's been he's a Lawrence guy, all that stuff. So that part factors in hugely when you talk about his decision. But if you're talking just a football decision, for me, it's Austin Booker, no question about it. I mean, I feel like Austin Booker has preseason defensive big 12 player of the year potential. Um, he could be in that conversation. Uh, what he did this year was, was nothing short of phenomenal. And the idea that he could have an off season and a preseason and, and, and sort of be in year two with this scheme and this program and, and his teammates and all that stuff. And, and if that buoys him in any way toward, you know, a faster start or, or more confidence, more, more production out of the gate, that kind of thing. Uh, the guy could be a monster next year because he was a monster this year. So I, I think that that's such an important position and such a hard, hard spot to replace. They obviously did very well with that, losing Lonnie Phelps and, and finding Booker. So um, I, I think he would be the one that that I would put on the top of my Christmas wish list if I was a Kansas fan that I would want to hear he's coming back. Um, you hate to lose a guy like Devin Neal, but – that's such a feel-good story either way. Either he comes back and he makes a run at being the greatest Jayhawk of all time, or he goes pro and it's, it's local boy makes good and you can root for him that way. And then, oh, by the way, you also have, you know, Daniel Hyshaw still running the football and you have some other guys that obviously can make an impact, younger guys, of course, but, but you know, it's not like they would be totally devoid of talent at that running back position. So um, I think it's Booker. And and uh, you know, in a perfect world, they would all come back, and, and I think that's in I think that's in the realm of possibilities. I, I do think all three of those guys could absolutely make that decision to come back, but um, those three for sure are going to be really really interesting to track. And uh, my crystal ball tells me that you know it's 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 good news for at least two of them. That's that's kind of what I'm feeling. I think I think you're. You're at least going to get two back and, and maybe all three. Um, the Devin one's the most interesting one just because of the, the implications of what it would mean for for his legacy. I mean, that's that's cool stuff, man. And, and I, 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 won't, I won't, you know, knock him either way he decides. But if he wants to come back, he's got a chance to, to really um, cement everything that, that, he, that he's meant to this school and, 
you know, if he leaves, he's already going to be remembered as one of the all-time greats and a wonderful player and, and remembered as such an important part of this turnaround. But, man, if he comes back, the, the numbers will be there to match that. And, you know, his, his conversation about, you know, again, being the greatest of all time, the modern-day John Hadle, I mean, that's, that's big stuff, man. And that, that, that would be hard to turn down. So we'll see. It'd be really interesting to see not only what he decides, but, but when he decides it. But, um, I, you know, either way, whatever happens with any of them, I think what's really cool is that this, this program and this coaching staff and this roster is in position to feel pretty good about heading into next year, knowing they'll be competitive and, and they've got talent and, and they can go out and win some more games. And, and, you know, that as much as anything is, is the most remarkable part of this turnaround. Cause it's one thing to kind of catch lightning in a bottle and have a good year and get to a bowl game or whatever. Now they've done it two years in a row. That's all exciting stuff. But, but Lance has talked from the minute he got here that he wants to build this thing to be sustainable and it's looking like we're there. So, you know, hats off to him for that. Um, and, and of course he'll have to sustain an offense without the coordinator, but, um, that's where the talent and personnel and, and the pieces in place can, can, can do a lot to help that. So, um, really interesting stuff. I'm, I'm excited to continue to cover it throughout the, uh, the winter and, and spring will probably be here before we know. Let's hope so. Yes, let's hope so. And, uh, Matt, thank you for the time as always, man. Uh, everybody check out r1s1sports.com. Uh, for the holiday season, you can even give it as a gift, as a subscription for somebody that you know. There you go. Yeah, yeah perfect holiday present. Gift. Yeah, twenty four bucks right now for a full year, um, and we may have some sales coming up too. So keep an eye out for that. But yeah, I mean it's 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 a lovely gift. You don't even have to wrap it. That's how about <laughs> That's that? Right. Yeah, don't even have to worry about putting in the the physical labor on it. Well, Matt, I appreciate the time as always, man. <laughs> Yeah, Derek, thanks, man. You guys have a great week, and uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again soon. All right, that's Matt Tate. R1S1Sports.com is the website there. One hour down, two to go. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. Let's get to our NFL Week 14 recap coming up next. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Hey, it's Derek Johnson from Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN, and despite sitting around in a studio all day, I feel loose and limber thanks to Massage Envy and their total body stretch service. If you have aches from a day at the office, working out, maybe a round of golf, Massage Envy can help. All you need to do is relax and breathe deep during the stretches, and they'll take it from there. It's great for your body and your mind, and they also have rapid tension services and advanced skin care. Massage Envy on 6th Street in Lawrence and 119th in Black Bob in Aletha. Four o'clock hour. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We'll get to uh, Kevin Flaherty joining the show of 24-7 Sports later this hour at 440. We got our KU Basketball Heroes and Villains segment coming up at the five o'clock hour and some KU Basketball audio that we'll get to coming up then as well. So uh, NFL Week 14 is in the books. We haven't had a chance to do a uh, NFL weekly recap in a few weeks here because it's just been so crazy with uh two basketball games a week football game every week but now that we're on kind of a one week uh college basketball schedule at this point one game a week yeah yeah until uh big 12 play gets started up or uh, i guess at least until maybe the bowl game happens and stuff we're gonna have some yeah. more time in front of us so uh let's get to our nfl week 14 recap first up biggest surprise mm, uh okay there was actually quite a bit of surprises i think from from this week in the nfl uh, but I'm going to go with this. Two Monday night games, and both of them end in pretty surprising upsets. 
Uh, so the Giants against the Packers kick field goal. Packers have a chance to win it late. They can't do it. And, you know, this, that was a Packers team that uh, people thought was pretty hot, right? They just beat the Chiefs, so they were probably feeling pretty good. And uh, here comes Tommy DeVito, a guy that you claimed was terrible. And it turns <laughs> out he's not. He's actually elite. And isn't it crazy? his agent is even more elite. Yeah. Uh, isn't it crazy that Daniel Jones is the third best quarterback on his team and he's making $40 Bro, million? Dollars? it doesn't make any sense. You found some guy living at his parents' house in Long <laughs> Island, an Italian guy, and he's the best quarterback on your team. Doesn't even make sense. How does that happen? I don't know. Pretty crazy. So then you go from that to the Dolphins choking it away against the Titans. Uh, the, the Titans are a team that I have have many times on the show said that they are terrible, and I think they are. But I like I like Vrabel as a coach. I just think their roster stinks. But uh, Will Levis, possibly him, and they come back and they beat the Miami Dolphins. Which, by the way, for delusional Chiefs fans out there. The path to the one seed is now reopened, and it's very plausible if you think the Chiefs are going to win out. There's still two back of the Ravens, though. Yeah, but the Ravens have a very, very tough Final Four games. They could easily lose two of those four games. I don't think they will. In fact, the Ravens and the Dolphins play each other, I believe. So the, the Ravens have, I guess that's true, they have at Jacksonville, Trevor Lawrence banged up. I think they're going to win that. At San Francisco, you would assume lose. they're going to lose that, but... I think them and the 49ers might be the two best teams in the NFL, so I guess they could win. And then Dolphins at home, but are you going to pick Miami at Baltimore in December? But the point is, no matter who wins Steelers. that game, it's a win for the Chiefs. Well, not to get the one seed. I, I just yes, don't, it I would don't be for the one seed. seed, yeah, because the Dolphins are a game in front of them, too. No, but the, the Chiefs need the Dolphins to beat the Ravens. Well, not if the Ravens lose to the Jaguars and the Niners. Yeah, I guess, but I, I don't think that you can expect that to happen. So I, I And then they play we'll the Steelers, see. and we all know... Weird things I happen guess. when the Ravens play this. I'm not getting my hopes up for the one seed. If you want to talk two, that's seed, why that's I said delusional Chiefs okay. fans. Okay, it's crazy people that the like Titans me. won that game. They basically gave up three touchdowns to the Dolphins' offense. Like they had the pick six on the on the like first Titans drive of the game around the goal line. Um, then they had when it was 13-13, the drop punt that gives them a first and goal situation. Then they had the dropped fumble on the option pitch to Derrick Henry. You basically gave the, you basically spotted them twenty one points, and you still beat them by the, by the Titans. Crazy. Dolphins. I, I, I speechless. Do I need to issue a fraud alert? Dick? Mm, maybe you do. That was for yesterday, though. You missed your chance. Uh, well, I mean, oh, I guess they hadn't. They played hadn't yet. played yet. Yeah, okay. They hadn't played yet. Would they have been your pick? No, I think the Lions are still, still more frauds. Yeah. The Lions is, got smashed. My biggest surprise is Joe Flacco and Zach Wilson both throwing for over 300 yards and winning for both of them. So for Joe Flacco, I mean, just like the fact that he came back at all is, is I guess, wild in its own right. I think he said, like, after the game, he's like, I'd love to play till I was 45. Like, you know. Man, father time affects nobody except, <laughs> or it affects everybody except uh, Joe Flacco. I guess so. But yeah, I mean, he was dicing up the Jags' defense. And the Jags don't have, like, a great defense. I don't think it's, like, bad either. Kind of just, like, average. Um, he just diced him up, man. Yeah. yeah. What did he have, 311 passing yards? I mean, he was... Yeah. He, he I will say the game. The Browns there was defense a couple touchdowns great. that the Browns had where it was like, okay, I could have made that throw. Like, okay, let's, let's be honest. Yeah, well, 311, three touchdowns, one pick, and they won the game over Jacksonville. Browns, to me, look like they're clearly going to be a playoff team here. Yeah, and they're, they're, they're kind of back. Yeah, they are. Sneaky back. With Zach Wilson throwing for 301 yards, two touchdowns, they blow out the Texans 30-6. to I 
I mean, both those guys having resurgent games. I don't know that I expect both yeah, of them the, to have 300 yards. The Zach Wilson saga again, obviously but, has been, been a weird one. bizarre, interesting, confusing. Uh, you know, it seems like maybe he went out and despite the fact that they wanted him back, he's going to ball. I don't know. There's there's weird stuff going on there. But, yeah, he did have a good game. Absolutely. So. What is the biggest disappointment? I think the biggest disappointment is probably the Lions. You go to the Bears and just kind of get blasted. I mean, really no other way to put it. <laughs> the Bears were just better. Uh, I think you could put the Texans in there too, right? The Texans with C.J. Stroud, people are thinking, okay, this could be a playoff team. This could be a team that compete for the AFC South. Then you go play the Jets, and that's a game that if you want to be a legit playoff contender, you probably need to win that game, and they don't. Instead, they end up also getting smashed. Uh, so I would say, I think Lions, we've talked a lot about the Lions, definitely the base, most disappointing, but Texans, honorable mention here, just because with people starting to buy into them possibly making a push, you want to be able to beat a, a lower slash lower middle tier team in the AFC in the Jets, and uh, it didn't happen. That is pretty disappointing, especially when they had a chance to, I don't know, uh, really cement themselves in, in the wildcard standings, and now there's like a billion teams at 7-6. and six Yeah, well, I mean, and listen, you know, obviously with the Trevor Lawrence injury and him not being fully 100%, if they would have won this game against the Jets, they would have been tied for first in the AFC South. The the Jags are 8-5, and five, the Colts lost, they're 7-6, and six, and the... Texans had a chance to be eight and five with they won, and it said they're seven and six too. Yeah, missed opportunity, that's for sure. Uh, I'm gonna go with the Dolphins offense when Tyreek Hill wasn't on the field. So Tyreek Hill gets injured in like their second or third offensive drive of the game. And, and when they had him on the field, they were moving the ball at will. Like they were they were able to go up and down and everything and, and easily just move past. And then he had an injury. I, I don't know what specifically, the, which I don't know if you watched the game. That whole situation was weird. He gets injured, and then he sprints off. And then he, yeah, he was, he was, and then he was like limping. And then all of a sudden he sprints off, and it's like, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? And then like later in the game, when they score a touchdown, he does like a wheelbarrow celebration. And it's like, dude, if you're injured, what are you doing here? So he actually did come back later in the game and had a couple big catches on like one of their. Uh, uh, scoring drives and looked good at the end of the game. But over the middle portion of the game, when he wasn't in the game, they weren't doing anything off on offense. And to, uh, like they, they would have a couple good runs here. It would be like, oh, eight-yard run by Mostert, seven-yard run by Achan. But yeah, a, man, like, that that's kind of disappointing, right? You still, even without Tyreek Hill, yes, I can understand why your offense is better when you have Tyreek Hill. Duh. But still, if you have two stud running backs, Jalen Waddle, good offensive line, great offensive coach who develops this great running game. Yeah, Jalen Waddell, like, you should still be able to move the ball on the Titans who have just been a bad football team this year, and they couldn't without Tyreek Hill. Yeah, so. I, I was hearing all about Tyreek Hill because uh, in a fantasy league that I'm in, there was a very tight matchup that was for a playoff spot in our fantasy league, and it came down to Tyreek Hill, basically, mm. being able to score more than, like, five points. And so he gets hurt early in the game. Like the end of the, yeah. yeah, he gets hurt early in the game, and it was like, you know, panic. From panic. Yeah, it was very, very, you know, bad, bad vibes. And then he comes back and is able to get like nine fantasy points and win. So it was quite the roller coaster of the evening uh, for my fantasy league. Best ho hum win. Yeah, best ho hum win. Uh, I'm gonna go with the Niners on this one. They just beat the Seahawks, and that was kind of that. I mean, I didn't. I don't know. They just they took care of business. They never were in jeopardy of losing the game. 
just just kind of beat them. <laughs> I mean, there was some extracurricular stuff that I think made the game more entertaining uh, with DK getting ejected, and uh, I think somebody from the Niners got ejected too. But really just kind of, eh, you were just the better team for, for four quarters. Never really never really any doubt about the outcome of the game. You just you just beat them. Oh, home. I feel like the Niners do that a lot. Uh, they, I know. They do do that. That's why they're, they're suffocating good. with the way they play. I saw something by NFL DVOA. I don't know how long NFL DVOA goes back time-wise, but they said right now the 49ers are a top-five team ever in the NFL DVOA. I mean, I believe that. I mean, yeah, they're just uh, a wagon. I'm mean, you know with the Broncos? I mean, you went 24-7 at the Chargers. It yeah. well, wasn't a game that, I, mean, I don't know, Justin a lot Herbert of gets hurt. super incident. Yeah, and Herbert then, gets uh, hurt. The, the Chargers at that point kind of become hapless. Your guy, Russ Wilson, cooking for 224 <laughs> yards and an interception. Um, Tate, two touchdowns. You forgot about the two touchdowns. Yeah, wow, I mean, their defense. Special. It's crazy their defense went from being like one of the worst in the league, giving up 70 points to the Dolphins, and now it's like good. I don't know what's up with that. Yeah, if you want to know something even more wild about Russ Wilson is 37.6 QBR for him. Mm-hmm. Easton Stick, the backup for the Chargers, his QBR was 37.5. Honestly, is this should Sean Payton win NFL Coach of the Year? <laughs> Russell Wilson now on the season, despite you saying that he is cooking a low key cooking, has a forty nine point eight no, 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 QBR, no. and they're low seven, key, six. low key cooking. You gotta understand the low key part means mm-hmm. that he's not really cooking; he just kind of is very low key. You know, no, Broncos, Broncos. That was a nice ho hum win for them because that easily could have been a spot where you go I'll on the this. road, if you the, lose division game, if the Broncos. Find a way to win the AFC West or, you know, something like that. Sean Payton absolutely should win Coach of the Year. Okay. If they if that does happen, I still don't think he will, though, unfortunately. I think he would probably go to, like, Shanahan or, like, Mike McCarthy if the mm-hmm. Cowboys finish, you know, 14-3 and three or whatever. So I don't think he will win. But if, if the Broncos do find a way to win the AFC West, in which case uh, you'd have to do the show by yourself from, from there on because I wouldn't be – I wouldn't be – I wouldn't be any, here anymore. But uh, if that does happen, I think he should win. I don't think he will, though. Uh, Saints, I think, also deserve I mean, 28-6, you're playing the worst team in the NFL. I just refuse to give um, Derek Carr credit for doing anything. Yeah. But, I mean, honestly, the biggest win for them was that everybody else, like the Bucks, beat the Falcons, so now it's a three-way tie for first in the division at 6-7. and seven. Yeah. Uh, week two MVP, offense and defense. Yeah, you offense. touched on it with uh, Joe Flacco. I mean, he's got to be the MVP, right? This, the, 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 you want to talk about cooking. Joe Flacco was cooking. I'm going to go with Lamar Jackson. I mean, that was one, one of the games that the the Ravens have played a good opponent, and it wasn't just like them randomly blowing the other team out. I shouldn't say randomly, but uh, they were forced to go to overtime. Matt Stafford looked really good. They dropped 31 points on a really good Ravens defense and, and forced it to go to overtime. And, you know, Lamar in the game was 24-43, 316 yards, three touchdowns. He uh, had 11 carries for 70 yards. I think I saw a stat that he had eight, like, quarterback scrambles on design pass plays, which was, like, his most in, like, four or five years or something. So he's making stuff happen even when they were getting pass rush. Um, by the way, I was thinking about this today. The Ravens had the offseason the Chiefs wanted slash needed at receiver, right? Odell Beckham goes for four for 97 and a touchdown against the Rams. They draft Zay Flowers in the first round, goes for 660 and a touchdown. Uh, they also add in, like, you know, just some other receipt, like Nelson Aguilar goes for five for 32. I mean, you know. Zay Flowers has been not as good as Rushy Rice, though. I disagree with that. but He has not, he has not okay. been as good as Rushy Rice, I don't think. And then with OBJ, it's interesting because— What makes you say that he has not been as good as Rushy Rice? 
I think Rashi Rice has been probably one of the better rookies this year at wide receiver. I think top he's three. Been solid, but I mean, when you when you add in the drop passing issues and the fumble issues that he's had, Flowers he's has more catches, sort of has more over receiving the yards. Rice has gotten sort of over the, the drop pass stuff a little bit, I think. A little bit. I think Flowers is better. But anyway, I'm, whatever. But with the OBJ thing, I think the... The knee-jerk reaction, and probably the reaction from some Chiefs fans trying to have copium with the situation with OBJ was, you're paying him that much money? Uh, he's not even that good. You know, he's old and washed. Well, now he's playing he can good. run a slant route and make a catch and outrun some guys. Yeah. So. Also, DeAndre Hopkins would have been nice. He went off last night. Yeah, I'm starting, to see, I'm starting to see a lot of people with the Chiefs basically come around to the fact that they're starting to blame Chris Jones for the Chiefs being unable to get a receiver, which... I don't you know. Blame Chris Jones. I mean, you can also just blame Brett Veach and say just give him the contract you wanted. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's I think it's probably more complex than that. I I doubt it's probably just I doubt it was probably just simply the Chris Jones situation that was holding them back from signing a receiver. But uh, yeah, that seems to be the that seems to be the common narrative now is that the the Chris Jones holdout situation kind of prevented the Chiefs from making any other moves. And I think when you look at the money, it probably was kind of true, but. If you wanted to make it happen, I think you could have if you were the Chiefs. So they were clearly content, I think, with their wide receivers. Uh, defensive MVP. Probably shouldn't have been. I would either go with Jaquan Brisker. He had 17 tackles and a forced fumble for the Bears' defense, holding the Lions, which is a good offense, at 13 points. Or Max Crosby. Yeah, which, Max Crosby was going to be my best. I mean, 10 tackles, he had two sacks, and he held the Vikings at three points. It's not yeah. his fault they lost. Two sacks, four quarterback hits, three yeah. tackles for loss uh, for him. So big game, yeah. I was going to point him out. I could also Harold Landry last night had three sacks for the Titans. Uh, okay, I think they're good. Oh boy, I have a hard time even saying this. I think the Broncos might be kind of good. <laughs> I think the Broncos might be kind of good. Uh, are they going to make the playoffs? TBD. Maybe. I think they might. Uh, and then I've been giving a lot of love to Joe Flacco. I, I think the Joe Flacco-led Browns are mm. good. If if the Browns win the Super Bowl with Joe Flacco. Joe Flacco's a Hall of Famer, right? Probably. I don't know that I think he should be, but like he would won be. two Super Bowls. Right. Was he the MVP of the Super Bowl they won? I don't think he was. I think he? he was. He was? Unless did they give it to Ray Lewis because it was his last game just I for the, I don't think they did. I think it was Joe Flacco. Uh I'm gonna say Bengals with Jake Browning. Even no, with Jake Browning, no, no, the Bengals no. are good. No. Why? No. Wrong. Why? They're not they're not gonna be good. They're not gonna be good. Well, we just have this. I think we just, they're good. Not, we just I actually had this conversation good. off air. Backup quarterbacks, mm-hmm. they have this thing where they're good right away. Yeah, but what if Jake Browning's different? Don't know what they're getting into. They don't have any tape on them. Give it a week or two, and it all will come crashing back to earth. But counterpoint: Jake Browning has now been the starter for two games, four games. Really? Ravens, Steelers, Colts, uh, Jaguars. He did not start for them against the Jaguars. He didn't start. Yes, he did. He didn't start for them in the Ravens game, but Joe Burrow got hurt in the first quarter, and he came in. Hmm. Jake Browning, total QBR, 60.4. Which, that's, that's quite not, a bit higher than Russell Wilson. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, And then you you if you say, okay, you have a quarterback who's quite a bit higher than Russell Wilson with really good weapons surrounding him, running back, receivers, all that yeah. sort of stuff. When the Chiefs lose to the Bengals, I will be very mad. With Jake Browning. Oh man, that'll be brutal. If that that happens. Suck. I think the Bengals are I think the Bengals could be a playoff team with wrong, Jake Browning. Wrong, 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 wrong. <laughs> Very wrong. I, I think they suck. <sighs> I think the Lions suck. Ooh. I, I mean, I I I guess they're gonna win the NFC North. I don't 
I don't. Are we I mean, sure? I, I don't know. I mean, I, mean, I, I guess, guess I don't know who else would take it at this point. I think the Vikings. Packers dropped a stinker last night. Yeah, I mean, I. Uh, I, I don't know. I, All right, what what are the Lions finished? What is their record right now? Are they eight nine and five? And or are they nine? Okay, they're nine and four. They're nine so here's and four. the final four games: Broncos, at Minnesota, at Dallas, and Minnesota. Versus Minnesota. Yeah. So I mean, dude, if you look if you look at it, Minnesota is two games behind the Lions. They still play them twice. Yeah. Well, I mean, they could split those with the Vikings, lose to Dallas. The Broncos one is the swing game because the Broncos are playing better right now than the Lions are. Correct. It's in Detroit, yes. so we'll see. But Lions if they lose lost, to the Broncos. Lions have lost two of three, and they yeah. you could argue the Lions should have lost to the Bears the first time yeah. they played them. If, if they lose to the Broncos, they'll probably finish one and three on the season, which would put them at 10 and seven. I mean, that would be quite the fall off. Yeah, so I think they suck. Okay. I think the Steelers suck. They're seven and six. Yeah, but okay. Here's the: the Steelers almost deserve their own special category of suck. Like, do they suck objectively? Yes, but they're still gonna find a way to win nine or ten games. They might. That's just how it goes. I mean, that's 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 been the Steelers' blueprint for like the last half dozen years. Every one of their games remaining they are is a coin bad. Flip. They're 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 objectively yeah. bad, but they somehow, some way, for whatever reason, they win nine games. I think I could probably argue, outside of their opening game, that I would have picked every Steelers game wrong this year. <laughs> okay, they lost to the 49ers. I would have picked the, uh, against them in that game. Uh, they beat the Browns at home. I guess I probably would have picked them in that game. Uh, they won at the Raiders. I don't know who I would have picked in that game, honestly. <laughs> they lost at the Texans. I probably would have been picking the Steelers at that point because we didn't know what the Texans were. Um, they beat the Ravens at home. I would not have been picking the Steelers there. They won at the Rams. I would have been picking the Rams. In fact, I think I did. Um, <laughs> I then they lost at home to the Jags. Okay, that one I might have been fine with. Beat the Titans at home. Beat the Packers at home. Lost at the Browns. Beat the Bengals. Lost to the Cardinals. Lost to the Patriots. Like, it just doesn't make sense. got blasted by the Cardinals. It just doesn't I mean, make sense. destroyed. Yeah, I think they suck. All right, what is your uh, top three, bottom three? Top three is I can't do Chiefs, Chiefs, and Chiefs anymore because no, the Chiefs cannot. actually suck. So, uh, top three is Niners, Cowboys, Ravens for me. Okay. Niners, Cowboys, Ravens. I'm just going to switch up the Ravens and the Cowboys just for the sake of being a little different. I go 49ers, Ravens, Cowboys. Bottom, bottom three, three is Cardinals, Raiders, Panthers. So, you think the Raiders are the second worst team in the NFL? Yes. Don't they have five wins? Okay. Look at the bottom of the NFL. A lot of bad teams have five wins. Mm-hmm. That's true. All right, I'm going 30, the Chargers, now that Justin Herbert's out, because they're going to probably lose out. Okay. Because they were already 5-8 and eight with Justin Herbert. 5-7. and seven. Yeah, 5-7. and seven With Justin Herbert. Probably on their way to 5-8. and eight. Um, Now it's Easton Stick, and I don't even know who their other backup court, whatever. Mm, yeah, I don't know. So now that he's there, I think they're 30th. Washington is 31st. Washington's really bad. They're three <laughs> wins. And ever since they Washington. traded away their whole defensive line, yeah, they've not. Washington. They've like at least when they had I the defensive maybe, line, they were okay, frisky. I'll take the Raiders out of my bottom three. I'll throw right. Washington in there. So you're taking the team out you had 31st, not the team out you had 30th. Well, I wanted to put the Cardinals 31st, but then I I don't like the Raiders. So at the last second, okay. I was like, you know what? Screw the Raiders. They're okay. 31st. All right, Washington. So it was 31st. totally biased on my part. Okay, you have to put the Panthers 30th, 32nd. Oh yeah, there's no. There's, There's no, no question around it. Yeah. There's no debate about the Panthers. Yeah. That's our NFL Week 14 recap. He's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. Kevin Flaherty is going to join the show in 15 minutes. You're listening to Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. Depend on it. 
This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN. I'm Derek Johnson with Nick Springer, and we're joined now by Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports. Uh, We'll get to some KU basketball, Big 12 talk here with Kevin in a moment. I want to start with some KU football stuff. The offseason, even though uh, we're not quite in the offseason, there's still a bowl game to be had. It it has kind of begun, kind of a weird, uh, I guess, schedule how how the calendar works now in college athletics. But uh, KU gets Deshaun Hanukkah. Tight end transfer from Iowa State, originally from the local area, Topeka. Kevin, what is what is KU getting in Hanukkah? Is is it as simple to say he's a Mason Fairchild replacement, or, or what are kind of your expectations for his role for KU in 2024? No, he's actually really different from Mason Fairchild, and then I think Hanukkah is a, is a much better, much more fluid athlete. You know, he's a guy that you watch on tape, some of the catches that he makes, and, and I realize, you know, Mason Fairchild had great hands and made some difficult catches, but they're the sort of things where he can trail across the field and he can leave a linebacker behind, you know, with the way that, that Hanukkah runs. And he, you know, one of his catches I know was, was kind of a scramble play touchdown catch where the ball got thrown behind him and he showed a lot of fluidity to, to kind of, you know, slide back and get to the ball and showed a, a terrific catch radius. And so, the interesting thing is, uh, I think from people, other people who were recruiting him uh, that I talked to after he hit the transfer portal, they said, you know, they thought he had the chance to be a, a solid blocker. I don't know if he's going to quite be Mason Fairchild in that area. Mason Fairchild came a really long way as a blocker during his time at, at Kansas. And so I think it may be a little bit of a downgrade, at least initially, as a blocker. But I do think that. Hanukkah gives them the ability to kind of stretch the field a little bit more from that that tight end spot, and, and especially when you think of potentially pairing him in some two tight end sets with a guy like Trevor Cardell, you're really talking about guys that can get down the seam and provide some some matchup problems. Outside of now with tight end being filled in here, they lost Will Huggins, bringing in Hanukkah. Is, is there a position that you think makes the most sense for KU to go hard after now in the transfer portal? Yeah, I think you always want to add defensive linemen. You know, I think it's one of the positions that is maybe easiest to project. It's one of the positions that's hardest to develop and, and know that a young guy is going to continue to to go the way you want him to go to get there. And, and so you would think, you know, if Austin Booker does, in fact, decide to, to return, I, I would expect that he probably would. Uh, then you would think you would have your defensive end group. You would think guys like Dylan Brooks would have a chance to take a step forward. You're probably going to be pretty okay at defensive end. Defensive tackle, you know, Devin Phillips was was Kansas's best run defender on the interior. And so that's a position that, that makes a lot of sense if you can find the right nose tackle who kind of fits that spot. You know, that that makes a lot of sense. I, I think continuing to ask, to upgrade the athleticism in your linebacker room makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, this is a lot more of a luxury, and Kansas is very much in sort of a – you think of a bar, you know, being one in, one out. That's kind of Kansas's transfer situation right now. And so if a player does leave that – I don't want to say they aren't expecting, but, you know, gives them that extra chance – and they've filled in some of those other needs. I would be really interested to see if they pursue the kind of wide receiver that can make plays 
as a jet sweep guy, you know, sort of that guy who can dazzle after the catch a little bit, turn a small play into a big play. Just because jet sweep is such a big part of, of what uh, of what Coach Grimes did at Baylor and and did before that, and so I, I think that when you look at the current roster as it is constructed, they have maybe a couple candidates for that spot, but that may be a little bit of a luxury spot when you look at hey, where does Kansas maybe lack a little bit offensively in terms of some of the other elite offenses in the country? Where do they lack maybe in terms of of what they'd like to do offensively, I think it's getting that guy that can take a six-yard catch and turn it into a 60-yard game. Yeah, yeah, and uh, I guess without Tanaka Scott, maybe maybe that does make them more likely to go after that. Uh, Melo Dotson, we know, is, is going to be returning on the defensive side of the ball after he said he's back for revenge. What type of revenge will remain to be seen, but uh, how, how much does having him back in the fold, how much does that help with the defense for next season in terms of as they try to take yet another step forward from after already taking one this year? It's tremendous because I, I we've talked about this on the show before, but I, I really think that Melo Dotson, there are a lot of years where, where he would have been Kansas's number one cornerback, and, and he wasn't this year, you know, when you consider the fact that he shared the field with with Kobe Bryant, who people tended to try to avoid, that actually led Dotson to, to get some honors that, that Kobe didn't get because he was able to make some big plays at times when uh, when people went after him. But I, I think he's a better corner than maybe people give him credit for, if only because quarterbacks were more inclined to attack his side of the field because Kobe Bryant wasn't on it. And so, you know, at uh, – uh, this is a, a not a bad worst case scenario, but worst case, you know, he's your number one corner next year, and he's a guy that potentially could be a, an all conference number one corner. He's gonna, I think, take that next step in, and be a really good player. Best case scenario, you bring back Kobe Bryant, you have the Big 12's best cornerback duo, and, and so I think that it's a it's a positive all the way around. I, I think. Losing both of those guys really would have stung. It would have put Kansas, obviously, in a spot to to go after cornerbacks in the transfer portal. But I, I think that as it currently is, you know, it, Kansas is is equipped to to maybe deal with the loss of Kobe Bryant if it happens. Even though that wouldn't be ideal, I think if Kobe Bryant returns, then you're looking at okay, this this secondary is really has a chance to be special. Yeah, I mean, what are we talking? I, I know Pro Football Focus has Mello and Kobe are literally the top two rated corners in the Big 12. So if, if Kobe does come back now with Mello, and obviously they've got three big freshmen coming in. They had a couple freshmen come in this past year with, you know, Davis and, and Jameel Croft. Uh, you still got Demaryius McGee kind of waiting in the wings. B.J. Dilworth was like their top recruit a couple years ago. Uh, that, that's kind of waiting there too. Like, it, it, would it be crazy to say that if Kobe comes back, this could not just be one of the best corner units in the Big 12, but one of the best in the entire country? Yeah, I think there's a there's a very real chance you could say that, especially when you're talking about the depth and caliber of athletes that they're going to have at that position. You're talking about Demarius McGee, you would figure would maybe factor in a little more next year, and he was a former top 100 player in the country, and so... You, you add in that, you look at this freshman class that's coming in. They have some stellar cornerbacks in this freshman class, including you know a guy in, in Austin Alexander that I think is as good a cornerback as Kansas has signed, you know, has gotten committed or signed, I should say, since Andre Maloney back in 
in the Charlie Weiss era, of course, you know, Andre Maloney had had kind of the, the tragic end, collapsed on the field and, and wound up passing. But I, I'm saying that Austin Alexander could be the best cornerback recruit that Kansas has had in the last 10 years wow. in terms of the way that, you know, He's six foot, six foot one. He's long. He's fluid. He's a really, really good player. Uh, I think the speed plays up when you look at all of the different things. And, and I was a big Kobe Bryant fan when, when they picked him up, you know, and he was, you know, the top guy or one of the top guys in his classes. So I don't say that lightly at all, but I, I really do think that they have some, you know, potentially special guys in that secondary, not just among the guys who have been there and done that, but guys that they're developing behind those guys too. Obviously, uh, beyond Kobe, big decisions for Austin Booker and Devin Neal coming up too. Uh, which of those big three decisions for, for Booker, Bryant, Devin Neal, which, which of those three do you think would be the biggest get for KU just in terms of I don't know, biggest impact on the team for 2024 to have back. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's Booker for a couple reasons, you know, for one, I think there's just so much value in having an elite pass rusher and, and Booker was that this year. And Derek, I don't say this, you know, trying to be, uh, trying to be funny with it. He didn't know what he was doing. You know, you would you would watch yeah. the tape, and, and there would be moments where you you know he would either be out of place or or whatever else. You know, Austin Booker got those eight sacks, and I'm not saying he wasn't coached well. I'm saying he's still young and and raw, and he's developing. But he got a lot of those eight sacks, you know, by effort and athleticism and, and motor. You all of a sudden you give him a full you know another full off season here another full off season to hit the weight room to continue to develop and everything. And I think you, you really have a high level player on the end of that at, you know, an absolutely premium position, you know, obviously in college, I think running backs are worth a lot more than they are in the pros and a good running back can, can really do a lot for you. I mean, just look at Oklahoma state and the way their entire season changed when Ollie Gordon started getting the football. And I, I think, you know, Texas Tech, for all of its issues, you know, they started finding a little bit more success once they started force-feeding the ball to Taj Brooks. And I, I think you can you can still be that bell cow type back, you know, in college. And so I do think if Devin Neal comes back, that would be, you know, just a, a tremendous thing for, uh, for the Jayhawks. But I, I don't think running back still has quite as much value as, hey, it's, it's third and eight, and we have somebody that you have to account for, you know, in terms of trying to protect the quarterback. We're talking with Kevin Flaherty of 24-7 Sports, switching over to some KU basketball talk. Uh, right now, kind of a weird dichotomy for KU. They're number two in the AP poll. They are third in betting odds to win the title, but they're only 10th in Ken Palm. They're seventh in Bart Torvik, which I, I think I saw today from – Shane Jackson, they would be in the 30s if they didn't have, like, the preseason additives. Uh, they're 12th on Evan Miyakawa's website. H- how do you explain the difference between uh, some of those, I-, I don't know, polls and, and being one of the-, the top teams versus just being kind of a top 10, top 15 team? And uh, do you think that might be indicative of, of I don't know, it's possible hurdles to come for KU? You know, I don't know that they're necessarily hurdles. I think when you look at, when you look at where they've been so far, I, I think Kansas is actually 19th when you take out preseason expectations. 
Um, and, and so that's about where I probably felt Kansas would be at this point, and, and maybe maybe I'm different in that regard in terms of other people thought, oh, Kansas is is going to go through the season undefeated and they're going to be the best team ever or whatever else. I, I thought when, when I picked them preseason number one, you know, I, I really thought that Kansas was a team that was going to go through a lot of growth over the course of the season. And, and one of the reasons that I picked Kansas so high was because I, I trusted Bill Self to, to be a good steward uh, of that growth. And I, I think we've seen that in the past. I think we've talked about on here how I, I think that the way that this team is going to, to sort of butter its bread if it's going to win a national title is going to be on the defensive end. I didn't think that would be an instantaneous thing. I thought it might be kind of similar to 2021 when, if you remember, Kansas was, was really bad defensively. There were people calling that team Bill Self's worst defensive team. And then, you know, Self kind of tinkers with the with the drop, you know, uh, of David McCormick, you know, in, in terms of where he was getting to on the on the court. And over the last month of the season, Kansas had a top 10 defense out of a team that, again, just before that was not good defensively. And so I think, you know, to me, I thought there was going to be a process for this team to get there defensively. I'm not sure I knew they were going to be quite as thin as they've been in terms of not being able to find quality depth just yet. You're hoping that that's something that, that comes along. I, I thought El Marco Jackson played well against Missouri. Obviously, the the first step before you can feel good about your six and seven guys is feeling good about your fifth starter. And I do think that you know El Marco has a has a chance to come along. Johnny Furphy has had some good moments and and things like that. But no, I, I didn't expect Kansas to be a finished product as we sit here in mid-December. This is a team that I thought might might even take, you know, several losses on its way into February and mid-February, but I, I felt like this was also a team that had a chance to really enter March and March Madness looking like a pretty fearsome team. Do you see a path for Nick Timberlake at this point, or is the, the defensive woes, is, is that too much to overcome? Yeah, I think I do see a path, and I found it interesting that Bill Self said he saw a path, too, because, you know, Self is not, you can say a lot of things about Bill Self, you know, and most of the people listening to this show would say very positive things about Bill Self, you know, a lot of opposing fans would maybe not, but one of the things is, is I don't feel like he forces it when it isn't there. Uh, with somebody and so for him to say that he saw a path forward for Nick and everything else you know I, I do think he needs to needs to make the open shots when he gets them obviously that's that's why he's out there on the court and, and the tough thing about that Derek is as you know if you get four shots a game from the outside there's only one shot difference between not doing your job at a good enough level and hey this guy is a is a great piece for us you know, you go one for four, and it's we can't have this guy out here making 25% of his threes. You make two for four, and it's, okay, this guy's a terrific specialist. But I think the other part of it is is that, yes, there's been a lot pointed to Timberlake as an athlete and maybe not being quite the caliber of athlete that typically competes at this level defensively. I think the bigger part is is that he's making mental mistakes defensively, and so that's really compounding that. And so 
I don't think Nick Timberlake, we're going to sit here on this show and say in March, oh my gosh, like Nick Timberlake is, he's a plus defender now. But I do think that there's a long way that he can go to improve where he's not making the outward mistakes that are made, that's making life so much easier for the other team when he goes in. And if he, if he can be that guy where he's just not destructive defensively and he's making open shots, I do think there's a chance that he could be a, a solid rotational player. All right, here's my uh, Big 12 trade idea for the week. Texas right. is looking to make a final player push for the college football playoff here, and they've lost a couple games early in basketball, uh, dropped a little bit in Ken Palm. They trade away Dylan Mitchell to BYU – to give BYU a, a really good athlete with all the shooters BYU has. And in return, BYU gives Texas Tyler Batty, their good defensive end, to give Texas yet another good defensive lineman and pass rusher for the CFP. And uh, BYU also gives Texas a player to be named later from the basketball team, which will just depend on uh, how how well it goes for Texas. So if, they, if Texas wins the title, then uh, BYU will give them like a bench shooter if – uh, Texas loses early, then BYU will give them maybe like a Fusani Treore or something like that. You know, I, I actually think you found one that works. Yes, you know, <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, in terms of for both teams, because obviously, you know, BYU doesn't really lose a lot in that scenario. And you think about what they could stand to gain. You know, Dylan Mitchell is somebody that really upgrades the athleticism of a team that's highly skilled but maybe not as athletic from Texas's side of things. You're two games from a national title. You know, you'll take, you'll take just about anything you can to, to get across that finish line. You can always use more defensive linemen, even with as good as Texas's defensive line is, you don't want to leave anything behind. And I think even beyond that, I think the key for Texas and basketball, being able to add a player later one, and then, everybody's acting like Texas has been full strength so far this year in basketball. And I don't know who you guys picked on your preseason, all big 12 teams. Maybe I was an idiot for making this pick, but I picked Dylan to sue on my preseason, all big 12 basketball team. And I think when you look at the way that last year ended, Dylan DeSue was one of the best players in college basketball up until, you know, he got hurt before the elite eight. If you look at you know his final five games or, or that postseason, and so I, I do think that while Texas, you know, giving away Dylan Mitchell might hurt Texas right away, you know, maybe you get a bench shooter, but you're also adding in Dylan DeSue here probably before too long. I don't think it hurts Texas basketball to a point that that Rodney Terry is jumping up and down and saying, "Oh, absolutely not!" Too. He is Kevin Flaherty. Uh, we have run out of time, unfortunately. So uh, if you're cool with it, we can double down on local prospect of the week next week or, or just push it back. But, uh, Kevin, I appreciate the time as always, man, 24-7 sports. Thank you. Have a good rest of your week. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. That's Kevin Flaherty, 24-7 sports. Two hours down, one to go. KU basketball next. This is RCST on KLWN. Depend on it. Five o'clock hour. This is Rock Chalk Sports Talk on KLWN with Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. We're going to get to some KU basketball uh, player audio from after their game against Missouri coming up in our next segment here on RCST. What are you laughing about? Nothing. Nothing. Continue. You can't just laugh Dude, and I not share. saw something on social media that I thought was funny. Sorry. Okay. Is it appropriate for the radio? 
no, it's not relevant to what we're going to be talking about. So. so it's not appropriate. So you like looking at inappropriate things on social media what? while we're at work? No, no, no. It's just not relevant to KU or or what we're going to be talking okay. about. Okay. Jeez, you're making it. Jeez, that sounds so bad. <laughs> uh, KU beats Missouri 73-64 to on Saturday. Uh, we do this for bigger games, football games, bigger basketball games. KU basketball heroes and villains, where we discuss the heroes for KU on offense, defense, other stuff, and then we talk about the villains for the game, which could be uh, a myriad of different things. Mm, true. Okay, uh, offensive heroes. Who are, who are the offensive heroes? Who is an offensive hero for KU against Missouri? Mm. Well, if you're looking at just straight points scored, Kevin McCuller. Led team in points scored. 17, but he only went 4 of 15 from See, the four. KJ Adams had 17 also, and he was much more he efficient. Was 7 of 13. So I'm leaning towards KJ Adams here. Uh, we talked about it yesterday on the show about how he showed that he can be potent from that little push shot from just inside the elbow free throw line area. That was really effective, and I think that's something that will definitely need to continue uh, for his as part of his game to help create opportunities in other areas for Kansas. So that was really, really impressive to see. And uh, he had a couple of emphatic dunks, and it was just the energy guy per usual. And he's been playing inspired basketball. So, K.J. Adams, offensive hero. I am going to pick an answer you're not going to like. <laughs> what, what, what is that supposed to mean? I'm going to pick Hunter Dickinson. Oh, okay. Because you said you, you just thought it was a low try game for Hunter Dickinson. I did not think he was trying, no. Okay. I, I think it was more about the scheme. I think Missouri was, was doing a lot to pack the paint against him. I think they were... You know what it looked like to me? What? It looked like Hunter Dickinson knew that Missouri was bad and that he didn't have to try very hard. No, I don't think that's, that's what, what it looked was. like to me. I don't think that's all what it was. I think you were seeing K.J. Adams sag, uh, or his man sag off him, and that guy was basically saying, hey, we're going to stop Hunter Dickinson. Then on top of it, you have to go up against seven foot five uh, Connor Vanover, which makes it a little tougher to get shots off. But he went 6 of 9 from the field. He was still efficient. He did yeah, not absolutely. have a game where he was like, oh, no, I'm just going to force Hunter up Dickinson shots. Hunter Dickinson can have know? a low try game and still be really good. I, I, I completely disagree, but uh, six of nine from the floor. He's one of one at the foul line. He ended up with 13 points on high efficiency, um, but it's also the fact that, like, the gravity of having him open things up for other people, the gravity of having him opened up those push shots for K.J. Adams. Yeah. right. Yeah. Like, he, he opens things up for other players, um, and he opens things up for people from three. I know K.J. Yeah. didn't take a lot of threes or well, make a lot of you threes. Know, he's, like a, he's like a black hole down low. You know he he get he gets guys suck in. Sound him. like a good thing? No, no, no. It is a good thing okay. because like defenders they, they just suck towards him and then that op- that creates. Sure. That was what I was going for there. Okay, that makes sense. Um, also, uh, his offensive rebounding, he had five offensive rebounds. Yeah, that's a lot of extra shots for you to come up with in this game. You know, so I think Hunter Dickinson had a really good game. I think he did too. I just think he wasn't trying that hard. <laughs> okay. Uh, what about defensive hero? Well, you got the KJ Adams block. That in and of itself almost makes it to where you would maybe pick him as a hero. Uh, I'm trying to think. DeWan Harris didn't really do too much. Kansas didn't really force a ton of turnovers. I don't know. I mean, is, am I wrong for just going with KJ Adams' offense and defense here? Um, Is that allowed? No, I, I don't think you're wrong with that. I mean, he clearly had the biggest highlight play of the game with the block. Am I allowed to do that? That was his only... I think they call steals plus blocks like stocks or something like that. That's so dumb. You don't like that? I hate that. What would you rather call it? Bleals. You think Bleals <laughs> is better than stocks? <laughs> yes, way better. I don't even think it's close. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, he had he, That was the only one he had for the game. 
It was a backflip, though. Now, yes, I mean, steals and blocks are not, stocks are not, bleals, whatever, are not the uh, be-all, end-all. You can play great defense and have zero of both, right? You just keep guys in front of you and, and yeah. maybe your guard or something. So Maybe a Marco Jackson sneaky, sneaky pick? That'd be an interesting For question. Defense? See, one of the things that makes it really difficult to figure out who individually played well at the end of the game, just looking at the box score for KU, is, like, you have to almost be charting this over the course of the game, which it's just, I mean, that's a lot to have to chart. Because they switch so much on the defensive side of the ball, you can't just easily be like, oh, well, their opposing point guard did this, or their opposing shooting guard did this, or their center did this, because, I mean, center's kind of the one where it's like, yeah, typically your center's on their center, but you're switching one through four, yeah. and so, theoretically, even though Sean East had 21 points... I don't know, two of those shots could have been against Juan Harris. Like, the rest could have been switched on to somebody else. So it's, like, hard to say this guy played specifically well or this guy, like, specifically didn't play well um, in that area. Um, I I mean, you could say Kevin McCuller had three steals. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of impactful. He had half the team's steal I'm, output. I'm riding with my boy KJ Adams here. Both offense and defense. He's okay. everything. He's Mr. Everything, Mr. Incredible, Superman. Well, when you look at Missouri's output, most of it was Sean East, 21 points. Nick Honor had 17. Yeah. Connor Vanover had nine, which, by the way, those those stupid little shots where they, they threw up a lob and you would just, like, <laughs> pat it in. There was one where, those are there was one where it was really stupid, where the guy, like, clearly had no clue what he was doing. He just threw it in the air, and it, he just put it in. Mm -hmm. Really dumb. Um... Anyway, I, I guess I'd go Kevin McCuller. Kevin okay. McCuller with the three steals will be the way that I go with that. Uh, what was the biggest hero for bench slash other? It's going to be really anything. Yeah, once again, the bench didn't really uh, do much. Uh, Parker Brown came in and did pretty well in his five minutes or whatever. Uh, Furphy was pretty good. Timberlake did hit a three, but he also had a play where he threw a pass off the side of the backboard, uh, if you recall. I do remember that. Yes, oh. and it led to an easy run out for Missouri. <laughs> Correct. Yes, and I think I actually think that was his last play. I think he got pulled and never came back after that. <laughs> actually, uh, so can't go with Timberlake. Can't go with McDowell because he didn't play. So you're down to Furphy or Parker Brown. I'm going to go with Parker Brown. I mean, Parker Brown continues to be uh, a very reliable guy that's going to get you exactly what you expect night in and night out. Mm -hmm. Five to ten minutes, pretty efficient work. Uh, he's he's pretty athletic, uh, so I'll go with go with Parker Brown. I don't know. Is there some super is is like is there a superhero where it's like he's just a rock and he's just steady and he's just you know you get what you get. I don't think so. You know, like the they're thing. superheroes. They're not well, like the steady thing. heroes. The thing is like a just a thing. Yeah, from Fantastic Four. Yeah, but he's he's still a superhero. Yeah, but he's know? just a rock. That's what I mean. Okay, you just you know you get what you get. Yeah, I mean the two blocks he had were good. You only play five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I'm aware. I'm aware. I'm aware they only played five minutes. Okay. Um, but the only other time. pick is Furphy. That's the thing. I have a hard time giving it to anybody on the bench. I, I really do. I know. Should we eliminate other somewhere? the bench heroes? Well, it's bench slash others. You can go with ever, whichever way you want with it. Okay. Um. Well, Allen Fieldhouse crowd again. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I was there. It didn't. It didn't feel like they were that jazzed up, but also it was kind of an ugly game that didn't really get to have a lot to get jazzed up about, you know. But they were good. It was good pregame. Pregame was good. Thomas Robinson cool. returning Thomas to Robinson. Lawrence, getting his 
jersey hanging in the rafters. Yeah, that was cool. I was a fan of that. It's kind of hard to pick one. <laughs> this is a tough team to do this for. Just, I mean, the bench is so thin. I mean, Parker Brown, Johnny Furphy, Jamar McDowell, Nick Timberlake combined. Would you like to guess how many minutes they played? Yeah, they play, I, I did the math earlier. It was like 21. 23. 23, yeah. They took eight shots. They yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm with you. I'm with you. They don't, you know. And this was, this was a game specifically where I would have, you know, I don't know if this will ever happen, maybe by necessity, if Hunter Dickinson ever gets in legitimate foul trouble. I kind of am curious to see Parker Brown, like, out there more. Like, he, he's good at what he does. Should they be small. playing more two big lineups? With uh, Parker, Parker Brown, Brown next Well, I mentioned this. Hunt, Bill Self has made a couple of comments that have alluded to the fact that he sounds like he's interested in doing that. Uh, I mean, it sounds... Seen it. It sounds a little, cra- but it's really not. Okay, think about it from this way. I, I, know I don't think it's crazy at all. There's more to it than just the three-point shooting. It's how you defend the other team if you have two bigs on the floor. Parker Brown is a better career three-point shooter than Marco Jackson is right now. <laughs> well, I mean, that's... So, I mean, theoretically... I feel like that's kind of just nitpicking numbers, but I get what you're saying. It sort of is, but, like, I, I just mean from a standpoint of... If no, I don't think put, it's crazy at all. It's just that... If you put Kevin at the two, KJ at the three... That sounds insane. Uh, Parker Brown at the four. You actually, theoretically, by subbing Parker Brown in for a Marco Jackson playing big, have just as much three-point shooting. Yeah, I almost wonder if you if the lineup would be... With KJ out? KJ and... Um, or Yeah, KJ out. And you have Dewan El Marco and Furphy plus... Uh, it's crazy how much those or no, four guys... Dewan El Marco and, and Kevin. Dewan played 40 minutes. Kevin played 39. KJ played 37. Hunter played 35. I'm telling you, man, that... That conversation about and you know whether or not that's going to wear down those guys, I I think it's very real. I think it was very telling that Bill Self publicly said that that we're a tired team, you know, a couple weeks ago, whatever, uh, you know, in the first week of December. I I do have legitimate concerns about that, especially once you get into Big Twelve play. Like I that that's kind of what I that's kind of what I'm getting to when I say I want to I want I'm I'm going to see Parker Brown maybe playing more. I mean I get it right. A guy like Hunter Dickinson, you don't want him off the floor. But I, I I do want to see more of that, you know. And, and even furthermore, is can Dewan Harris play forty minutes a night? No, he can't. No, I mean even look at you even look at uh this would have been Frank and Devontae senior year. Yeah, those two guys were playing thirty eight minutes a night, and it, you could tell it was wearing on them. <clears throat> so Aren't I you? I I have legitimate concerns. They're both all Americans. Um, okay, what about villains? There's some good villains here. There are some good villains. I mean, Missouri in general is a villain. Yes. So, like, it's just yes. the whole thing, the whole institution. Uh, Dennis Gates, the post-game comments. Yeah. Missouri fans when they're up 3-2. to two. The Antlers. Uh, uh, Vanover, I think, is an easy villain Fun just because Vanover. he's big and dumb and big and lanky looks like and... an oaf. <laughs> uh, Nick Honor. Nick he Honor, a personal a, villain for, for me. sure, goes up there. He had 17 points, 4 of 8 from 3. I get he was 4 of 8 from 3, but he's he still is not who, he's not who he thinks he is. <laughs> He was only one of six on twos, um, and he, yeah, he's he's uh, he was a bit boisterous out there. I guess would be the way of putting it. I think Tamar Bates would have to go up there. I know he only had four points on one of five. This is less about the performance making him a villain. It's more about like he he almost got into got into it with Kevin McCuller, right at the beginning of the game. Kevin McCuller almost got into it with Nick Honor at one point too. Yeah, true. Um, Kevin McCuller, man, if you don't if you haven't paid attention to him during games. That dude talks he a does. lot. Tamar Bates of was talking a lot 
back yeah. the other way. Yeah. Then you have the added fact that Tamar Bates is from the Kansas area. He went to Piper High School. Did not decide to come to Kansas. Maybe Kansas didn't. I don't know if they wanted. No, him, Kansas recruited him. I know. I know that for a fact. Um, he well, ended up he, going to he, IMG Academy for his final year of high school. Didn't he, he transferred from he somewhere to Missouri. Committed to Texas with Shaka Smart, and then Shaka Smart uh, got fired. Got yeah. Well, I, I, was he ever actually technically I, I don't fired? Know. He I just, don't know if he just left, left Marquette. Yeah. And uh, but the writing was on the wall. And then he committed to Mike Woodson, went to Indiana for two years, now to Missouri. So uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that would be the one. I that layups too. Okay, he was nine of twenty four on layups. Yeah, layups yeah. Kevin McCuller specifically, uh, he's had some trouble trouble making layups. He's been really good at getting to the rim and drawing fouls and body contact and stuff. But gosh, I mean, you'd love to see a couple of those become and ones. Yeah. Instead of just you know, seriously. Yeah. All right, he's Nick Springer. I'm Derek Johnson. Let's get some KU basketball audio coming up on the other side. You're listening to RCST. This is KLWN. Depend on it. Well, that's it. If you're listening on our podcast side, thanks for tuning in. Please give us a positive review if your platform allows you to do so, as you can find the show anywhere you get your podcasts with the best of RCST podcast. If you do have any questions for the show, whether it's for a mailbag, just something you think that'd be fun to talk about, you can reach out to us on our Twitter page at RCST1320. You can also email us if you don't have Twitter. RCST1320AM at gmail.com. That's RCST1320AM at gmail.com. And if you want to listen live, 3 to 6 p.m. Central Time, Monday through Friday on KLWN, KLWN KLWN.com, and the KLWN app. Have a good rest of your day and see you next podcast.